This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are challenged to consider our methods of advancing God's agenda and the implications of this new king and new kingdom. Absolutely. A little academic side note that really isn't tied directly to what I want to do today, but before I pass by, I'll point it out. Luke is using a literary device uh, in his writing, uh, particularly in the Acts account. Luke wrote this like two-volume work, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. I'm of the opinion that Luke is actually the last gospel written. Acts tied together. John's actually number three. Not everybody agrees with that. Alexander Shia is one guy that I really appreciate his perspective on that, and I think he's got it in the right order. He thinks Matthew's first, Mark is second, John is third, and Luke Acts is fourth. Neither here nor there, doesn't matter. Um, but Luke is using, in, in his Acts record, Luke is using this literary device where you have some stories followed by a long sermon. And then you have some stories followed by a long speech. Then you'll have some stories followed by a long speech. I was thinking the Bible Project guys would actually do something on this, and they didn't. I went and looked, and they don't have anything on it. But I was kind of surprised. Yeah. The, this literary device is something you see in Josephus all the time. Josephus does the same thing. He'll record a bunch of history, and then he'll have a big, long speech. One of the places that people are more aware of this might be, if you're familiar with Josephus and the story of Masada, Josephus tells the story of Masada, and then he puts this speech in the mouth of the leader of this zealot rebellion, this long patriotic we may die, but we will not be slaves to the Romans. And a lot of people have heard that speech before. Um, come to Israel with us and we'll recite it while we're on Masada. It'll be a ton of fun. Um, but that's that's the literary device. I mean, uh, uh, just an astute reader is going to ask the question, how, how does Josephus know how the speech went? Like, was he there, like, writing it down? Um, and and there was apparently he heard the story from two ladies and three children that were hiding in a cistern and somehow escaped after them. Anyway, so there is explanations for that, but that textual critic is going to say this is a literary device. It's how Josephus is choosing to tell his history. Now, I'm not saying that these speeches didn't actually happen, but Luke is using the same literary device. I'm going to assume that the speeches happened as they were delivered. That's how I'm going to read my Bible. But it's the same literary device. Luke is writing about some history and then wanting to expand on that history using the sermon. Like, uh, Acts 1 and 2, and then what happens at the end of Acts 2, Brent? Peter's big sermon. Peter's big sermon. And then we're going to have Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and we're going to get what? Uh, this big speech by Stephen. Big speech by Stephen. And then the next few chapters, and then all of a sudden a big speech. And the next few chapters, and if you get to the end of the Acts, all of a sudden you have Paul telling his conversion story to Felix and Festus and Agrippa and... You have this history followed by speeches, history followed by speeches, history followed by speeches. So there's a literary device at play here. I am wanting to go through Acts in chunks, but I'm not necessarily following the exact literary chunks that Luke is using. Kind of staying close to those things, but I'm straying a little bit. But as listeners of the Bayma podcast, I wanted you guys to know about a cool little literary device that's there. And you're welcome to study more about that. Learn more about it. I'm going to stray from that path. But it's going on. It's at play. And this should probably not be surprising to most of our listeners that uh, the biblical authors are taking something from their culture and adapting it to uh, to tell God's story, essentially. Absolutely. Here's something you're already familiar with, and we're going to turn it on its head and show you what our God is really like. Absolutely. They're going to they're going to meet people where they're at and use their language to 
to speak the message, without a doubt. So um, let's see here. So we said in the last podcast, Brent, that we had uh, we have all these stories of the early church community doing it, and then that's followed by what, Brent? Can you remember? Like they do a bunch of good things, and it's always followed by persecution. Persecution. They do some more really great things, and they're bringing healing. They're bringing shalom. I, I want to do two things today. We talked in the last podcast about what they were doing. They were bringing healing, shalom to chaos, bringing kingdom. That's what they were doing. Today, I want to challenge us about the how, the methods. How were they bringing the kingdom? And then I want to close the discussion today by talking about what are the implications of this kingdom. So we talked about the what last podcast, today, the how and the implications. Two kind of two parts, somewhat disconnected, somewhat connected, but two parts of my discussion today. And the first part will be the challenge. It'll be the provoking. It will be the part that's probably uncomfortable. And I'll probably even make some of my leaders really upset. That's okay. Save me your email. Just disagree with me on your own. It'll be great. Um, but uh, but that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to look at the how. So again, we had we had healing, we had persecution, we had shalom, we had persecution, we had, and the persecution here comes with the arrest of which Bible character, which apostle here, Brent Stephen Stephen, right? Is it, well, is he, he's an apostle. Well, Stephen, the good old Bible character, Saint Stephen. We'll put it that way. How about that? Okay. Okay. There we go. So then, and he gets arrested uh, by the Sanhedrin. And then you have this long speech as he confronts this Jewish leadership, and then he's going to get stoned. How about you read us the, for brevity's sake, we'll skip the speech. Anybody can find it in Acts chapter 7. Give us the last part after the speech. Read us that part of Acts. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. All right. So um, at this point in the book of Acts, uh, we need to go through some things here. Um, one of the most profound truths that I got to learn when I was in Israel and predominantly even Turkey about the early church, these apostles and these these leaders of this early church. It doesn't take long as you read the book of Acts to figure out that these early believers are taking an awful lot of heat from the world around them. Almost all the early chapters contain stories of resistance and persecution. The most significant source of this persecution seems to come from their own religious community. Not really all that different than our experience today. Remember that the corrupt Sanhedrin had already executed their leader. Continue to push this movement forward publicly is an incredible decision full of risk and danger for their own lives. But they do push forward. What strikes me as so significant is the manner, the how, the methodology of what, uh, that they use as they follow their rabbi. Their rabbi had taught them how to do this. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a teaching about responding to injustice. He said that if they were struck on the right cheek to turn the, what, Brent? Turn the left cheek to them. Turn the left cheek. If they were sued for their outer cloak, what they would have called their talit in the Hebrew, they were to give their what? Their inner. Their inner cloak, what's called the haluk in their world. Uh, If the soldier demanded they carry a pack for one mile, according to the practice of Angaria, what were they to do, Brent? Carry it two miles. Carry it two miles. And I, we may have even talked about this when we went through Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. 
But people hear Jesus' words as purely pacifistic, but that's not entirely true to the context. When Jesus talks about the cheek being struck, he specifies what cheek, Brent? Which cheek? The right cheek. The right cheek. And in a world where all personal interaction is engaged with the right hand, to be struck on the right cheek would have to be a backhanded action. Uh, This works a lot better, not on a podcast, in person. So grab a friend. Uh, (laughs) Such a great setup. And uh, just have them stand in front of you and then say, hit me with your right hand on my right cheek and see how they have to do it. They have to backhand you. Right hand to the right cheek is a backhanded motion. Or it's going to be very uncomfortable for the one doing the striking. (laughs) It's going to be a really weird MMA type swing um so so this was a if you're backhanding somebody in this ancient culture this is a demeaning strike you do it for slaves or people of a lower class if you strike someone on the left cheek it would be with a fist but jesus is telling his listeners that if they're treated like a lesser human being they are to respond not with violence jesus does not say hit back at all period but with a public display that shows the injustice for what it is He's telling them to confront injustice by shining light in dark places. It might be like saying, uh, you hit me like I'm a piece of property, but if you want to hit me, you can hit me like the human being that I am. That's not pacifism, but it's also not redemptive violence either. The same is true for the following examples. To sue someone for their cloak is incredibly unjust and breaks commandments found all over the book of Deuteronomy. If someone wants to wrong you to that extent, Jesus says, just give them everything and stand naked before them, showing the injustice for what it is. And the other example, a soldier allowed by the law called Ingaria in the Roman world, Ingaria allowed them to force you to carry the pack one mile, to demand more than one mile was against Roman law. Jesus says if a soldier wants to treat you like garbage, put him in the incredibly awkward position of volunteering to help him break the law. (laughs) Jesus' first followers understood this teaching in a way that we as 21st century American Christians do not. Time and time again, I run into stories in Turkey of the ancient church and the first Christians who were martyred for their faith in the ruins of Heropolis. You've been there, Brent? Yeah, that was very... Very powerful location. Yes. Close to Colossae, Laodicea. There sits a martyrium for one of the early followers of Jesus named Philip. That was probably my favorite stop in Turkey. Ooh, good stuff. According to church history, Philip was tortured to death at the city gates while he refused to denounce Christ. They hung him from the gate with a chain through his Achilles while they raped and crucified his seven daughters just outside of his reach. According to the historian, the daughters died encouraging their father to remain steadfast and not deny Jesus. In the book of Acts, we keep reading about the persecution of these first believers. Eventually, we run across the story of Stephen, who was stoned to death by the religious authorities. To be clear, the first Christians were not pacifists. They were confronting evil, shining light in dark places. But nor were they going to protect themselves and fight back. To be clear, the apostles weren't trying to obtain concealed carry permits. They were not fighting for their rights. They were not sitting back philosophically contemplating about what they would do if someone broke into their homes and began raping their children. Ask Philip. He lived it. Now, please hear me. I'm not against concealed carry permits. There's wonderful reasons why somebody might still do that. Yada, yada, yada. I'm not. I, I, I live here in Idaho, and I love to what, Brent, with my spare time? You hunt. I hunt. I love guns. Uh, I don't carry guns for self-defense. No, I carry them. I carry them for sport. I use them for sport. I don't have them within reach of my bed at night. They're locked in a safe far away. 
Not for one moment do I think any of this is how the followers of Jesus went about bringing shalom to chaos. No. Time and time again, these forefathers of our faith modeled for us what it means to be a city on a hill and to show what radical forgiveness looks like. Because in the reality of the kingdom of God, forgiveness has to win the day, not revenge and not self-preservation. When John's disciple Polycarp was brought to the arena in Smyrna, the soldier asked him to denounce Christ. And the famous story, Polycarp recounts how Christ has never let him down. So why would he repay such kindness with denial? As they begin to arrange the wood and nail him to the stake, Polycarp instructs them to stop, telling them that God will give him the perseverance to stand in the flames without being fastened. The the soldiers light the wood on fire and Polycarp is burned at the stake. Philip and Polycarp were made out of the same stuff as people like Stephen. Stephen did not start slinging stones back at his accusers in self-defense. Stephen was too busy praying that God would forgive them of their ignorance. Go ahead and read it in the text, Acts chapter 7. One of the things I find so striking about the story of Stephen is found at the end of his life. As Stephen is being stoned to death, the text tells us he looks up into heaven and says he can see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Initially, that's not an odd image. There are numerous places throughout the scripture where you can find the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. What's striking is that Jesus is not sitting Jesus is standing. This is the only place in all of scripture where Jesus is ever pictured standing at the right hand of God. While it's possible that I might be reading too much into this story, I see this as a picture of Jesus paying tribute to the first of his disciples who will take seriously the command to pick up their cross and follow him. And I, I, I want to challenge us. I want to provoke us a little bit prophetically as we listen to this podcast. Again, I want to reiterate, I'm not against guns. I'm not against concealed carry permits. I don't, honestly, please save me your email. I get it. I know I'm going to upset about 40 million people and they're all going to write me wanting to know like why it's okay that they carry a gun. That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. That's not how we bring kingdom. Like there might be a million reasons why you would and you will. That's fine. That's not how we bring kingdom. It's not how the kingdom shows up. It's not what the early church did. Um, And I love the conversation about self-defense. And I know that there are verses, quotations from the Talmud about people breaking into your house and wanting to rape your wife. And I just stand in in the ruins of Heropolis and I watch Philip and I go, yeah, they did. They did. They raped his whole family. And uh, he did his thing. He did the early church thing. He did the martyr thing. It's not very American but it's very kingdom. And I think it's good to note that his family was completely on board with it. It's not right. like they, right. they were waiting for him to step out and save them and protect them. They're saying, no, don't compromise. Yes. And, and this is so different from the zealot agenda. And yet, Brent, how much zeal does it take for those daughters to plead with their father not to deny Christ? That takes an awful lot of zeal. It is a, a sobering... Thing to think about. It's not that these are like people that weren't zealots. They were zealots. They had just retrained their zeal to go to somewhere else. But they had just as much zeal as anybody carrying a Sikar dagger. But just note these early apostles, that's not, they're not packing Sikar daggers underneath their sleeves, ready to fight back. They're doing something else. But alas, that's enough for part one. Let's move to part two. 
of our conversation today. Let's talk about what are the implications of this kingdom. We talked about the what they're doing, and we now talked about the how they're doing it. What are the implications of this new king and a new kingdom that are showing up? So uh, what do you have in uh, Acts chapter 8 and the next chapter, Brent? Read us some verses. So it starts off, Saul approved of their killing him, referring to Stephen. And then on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. Right, so at the end of the story about Stephen, one of the most dominant characters of the New Testament makes his entrance. Who is it, Brent? With the trumpet blast? Saul. Saul, the Apostle Paul, originally known as Shaul who stands and holds the cloaks of the accusers while he oversees and approves of the execution. While we will talk much more about Shaul in time to come, the next thing we're going to see, uh, we're going to skip Shaul for now. We're going to come back to him in the next episode. Um, but the next thing we see is this early church again being what, Brent? Persecuted, yes. They're, again, they're persecuted and they're now being scattered. They're being chased out of the land at the beginning of Acts 8. Nevertheless, it's the very next paragraph that assures the reader of God's redemptive plan for the world is not going to go on unhindered. They continue to bring shalom to chaos and healing to brokenness. While the church gets pushed to different corners of the empire, Philip ends up in Samaria. Samaria! Of all the places, Brent. Like, that's the place, remember? Like, Samaritan woman at the well? Like, nobody goes there? Like, what? But they do. I wonder if there are people in Samaria because of Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And all those Samaritans who came out in John 4, and what did they do? Brent, at the end of that story. They all what? They all believed. They all believed. Like, I wonder if there's like a little movement there. They hear about this movement. Philip goes to Samaria. He preaches to those in Samaria. And the kingdom of God advances explosively, just as Jesus taught them. Now, Samarians are going to be, Samaritans are going to be what? Are they going to be insiders or outsiders, Brent? Definitely outsiders. Definitely, definitely, definitely outsiders. So what are the implications of this kingdom? Outsiders are showing up. If this king and this new kingdom, if kingdom is coming, if shalom is breaking out in chaos, if kingdom is showing up, if God's will is done on earth as is in heaven, the implications of this kingdom is that outsiders are going to be drawn in because that's what the story has been about from the very beginning. Session one, God called Abraham to what, Brent? Uh, To partnership partnership and in that partnership he was going to bless all nations bless all nations session one session two it's been the heart of the story why did he put his people to crosses of the earth to bless all nations it's it's happening if kingdom is coming that would be the expectation and so there's a sorcerer there we won't read this part but that next part of the chapter there's a sorcerer there that latches on to philip begins to follow him when the church hears the news and the people in Samaria are jumping in on God's redemptive plan for the world, they excitedly send Peter and John to investigate. When Simon, the former sorcerer, sees them casting out evil spirits, his old self can't help but want a piece of the action. But this early movement is not interested in cheap thrills, spiritual gimmicks, or economic advancement. They are wanting to grow deep roots, and they, ex- and, and they ex- exhort, I almost said extort, they exhort Simon accordingly. Had the chance to extort him, they sure didn't. That would have been a very different story. That would have been. I find the next story so inspiring to my walk as a Jesus follower. 
continuing to follow the prompting of the spirit, Philip heads down the road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And there he meets an Ethiopian eunuch who has traveled to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. It's at this point where most of us might appreciate some context. So how about you read us a story first, Brent, and then we'll talk about that context. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Okay, now, what passage is that that he's quoting, Brent? A famous passage. Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Suffering, suffering servant. Suffering servant. We talk yeah. about that in Jesus all the time, right? So go ahead and go back one verse. There he stopped. Go back one verse and start reading again. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. All right, so Philip kind of follows this prompting from the Holy Spirit, ends up on a road, ends up meeting this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, the Ethiopian eunuch is the treasure for the queen of Ethiopia. Uh, and the way I'm going to, I don't know if your translation is different than mine. I've always just said that Candace. Oh. But that's very English of me. K-A-N-D-A-K-E is how they spell it in this translation. Oh, really? Wow. That's, so. uh, is that new NIV? Yeah. Okay, they've changed it. My old NIV has Candace. <laughs> I always just said Candace. And I was like, Kandake? Well, that's an I, interesting name. I, have, I, like I that. have no idea. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I'm sure Candace isn't the appropriate contextual translation, so you're probably a lot closer than I am. No offense to any Candace listeners. We right, have absolutely. Uh, uh, let's see here. He's a, This guy's an important guy, this Ethiopian unit guy. Uh, he's on his way from worshiping the God of Israel. We are not told he's a Jew, although it's possible that he is. Um, I think it's kind of unlikely. Like my opinion is if he was a Jew, it feels like an important enough detail Luke would have probably mentioned he's a Jew from Ethiopia. It is possible. There are lots of Jews in Ethiopia. He's going to worship the God of Israel. He could be a Jew. We just don't know if he is. Even if he is a Jew, as a eunuch, he will not be allowed to worship Adonai and will be excluded from the temple assembly. He would have been forced to worship God as an outsider. Same as the Gentiles. Could have worshipped in the same court as the Gentiles, but not gotten any closer. The book of Deuteronomy explicitly excludes those with damage or altered genitalia from entering the assembly of worship. The uh, reference for that is Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. Is what you're looking for there. Uh, this guy, this eunuch, is carrying around a scroll of, I- of Isaiah. Now, what is so odd about that to you, Brent? Well, scrolls are kind of hard to come by yeah. at that time. Yeah. These are, <laughs> like, we remember us talking at the beginning of session three about how an entire village would only have a few scrolls, like very few people, uh, 
uh, an entire town of uh, of hundreds or maybe thousands of people would have a handful of scrolls. He didn't have the entire scripture. So the fact this guy has the scroll of Isaiah, that's a big deal. Um, it tells you he's got some wealth, at least is working as a treasure for Candace. You would appreciate, uh, you would expect this. Um, he knows everything that we mentioned above. Like he knows if he's got a scroll of Isaiah, he's not messing around. He's not like picking up reading material, at the doctor's office laying on the coffee table. Like he knows what he's doing. He knows he can't get into the temple and yet he's going to worship the God of Israel anyway. He's coming back from Jerusalem where he stood in the court of the Gentiles and caught glimpses, just glimpses, Brent, of the house of God. This outsider is content with what he is able to receive from God. And he's still serious about the what? About the text. He's still serious about the text. Now back to our story. Philip sees that he's reading Isaiah and asks him if he understands what he's studying. Like a typical Middle Easterner, the man responds with, who could understand this by himself? I have to understand it with other people. I need your help. So come up. Imagine, I imagine, I do, sensing this is the reason God had him on this road. Philip climbs into the chariot and begins to expound on the message of Isaiah. The passage tells us that the eunuch is reading what passage, Brent? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Now, if he's reading that, that would be a holiday reading, which would make perfect sense for why the eunuch would be reading this on his way to temple worship and possibly still be thinking about it and studying it on his way back. It would make sense that he's going to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel on a holiday. It's a holiday reading. This is the prescribed reading for the trip. Every Jew would be reading these exact same words on that same day. But now watch what Philip does because he knows his text. What the passage says directly is that Philip tells the eunuch about Jesus starting in Isaiah 53. Can you find that phrase, Brent? Uh, Yeah. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. All right. The assumption is that he continues reading. You don't suppose that he got to the next few chapters, do you? Do you have Isaiah 56, Brent? Tell us what verses we're looking at here. Starting verse 1. Listen to this. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this. The person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Does this eunuch do that? It seems like it. Sure seems like it. Go ahead. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Oh, who are we talking to here? The eunuch. Oh, man. He's just gotten there and he's just had to deal with this whole separation. Like he can't go in. He wants to go in. He can't go in. He knows this. He's okay with this. But I'm sure he still deals with the internal angst. Go ahead and keep reading. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. Come on, son. Who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant to them. I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And where is he going to put that memorial and name? In the temple. Oh, come on now. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Uh, You don't suppose Brent Billings that good old Philip knowing his text as a disciple of Jesus went to Isaiah 56, do you? Uh, It seems pretty likely. Oh, man. And and that's all we can say. It is speculation. It's just pretty darn good speculation. It's only a few lines down in the scroll. Man, holy smokes. He knows his text. I mean, I wonder, like, how many times had Philip even seen a scroll of Isaiah before? Like, he knows it, but how many times has he actually held a scroll of Isaiah? Yeah, I I don't know. What an opportunity, right? What a crazy day at work. 
after he, after he stopped geeking out, it's like, okay, wait, 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 wait. hang on, yeah, hang yeah. on a second. Wait a minute. Where are we? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Let's read on. Let's just, exactly. let's just read on a little bit. Yes, exactly. So wait, we need to look at the questions the eunuch asked and Philip is answering because I think therein lies a really great lesson. The eunuch asked him, go ahead, can you read it, Brent? Read, find his question in the Acts chapter and tell me what he asked Philip specifically. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please. Who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Okay. Now, you might remember we talked about this entire ending to Isaiah. Let's actually link that lesson in the show notes, Brent. Uh, Third Isaiah, our podcast on the Suffering Servant Discourse. Let's link that so people go back and listen to it if they want. Um, But we talked about the Suffering Servant Discourse as being a call to Israel to be God's servant. We always love to talk about Jesus. But if you remember in that podcast, we said, it's not primarily about Jesus. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. Maybe a secondary application, but it's not your primary application. The primary application is that that servant, and we looked at it, Brent, in that podcast, numerous times, God tells us who the servant is. Jacob, my servant. Israel, my servant. Judah, my servant. God's people are the servant. If they suffer, they will be building the future. For the historical readers of Isaiah, this is not a messianic prophecy. This is an exhortation to suffer for the Lord. My point is that the eunuch's question has nothing to do with the Messiah. His question is about himself. His question is this. Does this exhortation that you're teaching me about, Philip, does it belong only to the prophet Isaiah and the people of God? Or does it even apply to outsiders like me? And Philip explains to him, using Isaiah, possibly chapter 56, that in Jesus, this good news and call from God is for all people. While he may be excluded from the assembly of worshipers at the temple, he is not excluded from the community of God and the invitation to partner with him in putting the world back together. My point in all of this, as we've looked at what the early church did, we looked at how they did it. What are the implications of this kingdom? The implications of the kingdom is that all the people who didn't belong, all the people who are on the outside, all the people who needed to be blessed are finding the blessing, they're finding the belonging, they're finding the inclusion, and and they're finding a place to sit at the table in this new Jesus community. When we read this passage and we just are like, oh, he's reading Isaiah 53 and he wants to know if it's about Jesus. No, that's not what he's asking. He's asking if there's a place in the kingdom for him. And Jesus, and, and it is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Philip says, in Jesus, yes. You are. This is what Jesus has shown us about the text, about the narrative, about the story, about how to interpret it out. I learned from my Jesus, Philip says, that you have a place in God's family. That is what we're supposed to pick up in the story because it's about Samaritans in the beginning of chapter eight. It's about somebody who wants to misuse it in the middle of chapter eight. Now it's about Ethiopian eunuchs at the end of chapter eight. This is about outsiders, the implications of this new king and a new kingdom is that outsiders get to come inside. I think that's good for a conversation today. It's pretty pretty good. good. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have any uh, questions or thoughts, I guess don't, don't write us on this one. Don't write us on this one. You want to talk to me about your concealed carry permit? It's great. Love it. Tell me what you're packing. It's awesome. Don't argue with me. You're free to disagree. That's totally cool. Free to disagree. Uh, so maybe uh, jump on the Baymaw Deception Facebook page. Talk to uh, some other Baymaw listeners about it. <laughs> <laughs>
Whatever works. Uh, anyway, thanks for joining us on the BMO podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.